Unfortunately, horror as a genre has had like more trans representation and more like drag representation than most other film genres. If it's not comedy, it's horror. You may know two of our time-honored guests, BJ and Harmony Colangelo, as the hosts of the podcast This Ends at Prom, which looks at coming-of-age and teen girl movies from their queer, feminist, cisgender, and transgender perspectives. But these dark wives are also prolific horror film analysts who are contributors to Fangoria magazine and Shudder's Queer for Fear docuseries, as well as co-authors of the forthcoming book Sleepaway Camp that focuses on the queer themes of this controversial 1980s slasher. As a companion to our series on early drag queens, I've invited them both on the show to dissect the popular horror trope of the murderous man in a dress and all the complicated trans and drag representation in movies like Sleepaway Camp, Psycho, The Silence of the Lambs, Dressed to Kill, and The Rocky Horror Picture Show. We'll talk about how these cross-dressing killers have affected the psyche of Americans through the decades, whether there is anything redeemable about these characters, and what they have to tell us about the horrors of the present day. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. Hello, listeners. Do I have a treat for you? It's two of our favorite guests who were actually here pretty recently talking about Barbie and Jackass, the two genders. Um, And uh, there are only two, by the way. And so here we are with BJ and Harmony Colangelo, the hosts of This Ends at Prom, a teen girl movie podcast where you both kind of dissect as deeply as possible some of the most important movies made for teenage girls. And now we're talking about the other genre that I feel like you both are obsessed with and that I am eternally obsessed with, horror. So welcome to you both. Hello. Hi. I love how confusing this must be for your listeners of the jackass and Barbie people are now here to talk about gender politics in the American horror film. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. It seems to all fit together to me. (laughs) It's only logical. And I mean, not to toot our home, but we literally wrote the book on this. So yeah. And what did you write the book on? So it's not out yet. It's it's a part of a series and it'll be coming out hopefully later this year. But it's the entire dissection of Sleepaway Camp and the killer crossdresser or, you know, murderous man in the dress trope, the politics of the time and prior to that that led up to it and where we have unfortunately gotten since then. Ugh. It's been a very fun book to write because just when we think that we're done writing the book, something else happens in American politics that make us go, well, we got to go back and address that. <laughs> Fucking Florida. <laughs> oh, wow. It's I'm so excited for this book. And it's something that I've definitely studied on my own, especially when we were doing our horror movie series a zillion years ago. So I'm just uh, I couldn't think of two better people to break down this uh, very complicated villain of horror. So I would like to start with just you both telling me how you got interested 
in this trope of the killer man in the dress and decided to do something like write a whole book about it. (laughs) Um, I can at least pinpoint where mine was sort of exactly is that I've been writing about horror professionally for about 15 years now. It's always been something that I'm very passionate about. But I started getting way more interested in the way that gender politics and uh, especially the way that transgender politics are presented in horror around the time of Insidious Chapter 2. I've always really liked the gendered sort of discussions that exist in horror. Uh, Men, Women, and Chainsaws by Carol J. Clover might as well be my horror Bible. And she talks a lot about how horror is sort of a gender-neutral genre because it's constantly playing with gender conventions in the way that, you know, slashers tend to be, you know, very penetrative. And Final Girls a lot of times have, like, masculine names or kind of tomboyish. uh, And they're definitely virgins. They're definitely not having sex. And so that's always been really interesting, but uh, the uh, trans author May Rude wrote a piece during Insidious Chapter 2, which is a film that has a side plot where, I guess, spoiler alert for a movie that's definitely over a decade old at this point, that the bride in black that has been haunting Patrick Wilson and Lynn Shay uh, has a tragic backstory where they were forced to dress like a girl as a young boy, and now they are irreversibly fucked up, and now as a ghost are haunting people dressed as a bride. And May wrote about that experience and what it was like being a trans woman in the theater and how isolating that experience can feel or how scary that can be of like, is everybody in the room going to look at me and now believe I'm this person? Am I this dangerous person? And so because I've already done so much work looking at the way like cis women have been in horror, I started thinking about, okay, well, what about people who have gender identities outside of my own? What does that look like? And I'm a queer person. I have always been in relationships with trans women throughout my life. So it's not like this was like a new thing for me, but I wanted to learn more. And then, of course, I ended up with Harmony as my wife. So then that became a lot more at the forefront of a lot of what I I (laughs) research in because it it affects our lives. That is such a better answer than anything I'm going to (laughs) say. Damn, I should have gone first. See, mine's not as crystallized and as intelligent. Um, I guess I was always just noticing the common trend in horror films or in more commonly in the 90s uh, comedies of, uh, you know, men in dresses and what that meant. And it's like, but like in Ace Ventura, she's so pretty. I was. I, <laughs> what does that mean? In my notes, I have talk about Finkel is Einhorn. So <laughs> you already brought it up, babe. God, it's just like. Especially when you like watch a VHS of it that we recorded off the TV and you see the dramatic turnaround where you see like the tucked parts and it's just like that part's not there in the TV edit. So I'm like, I don't get it. (laughs) She's pretty. (laughs) Sean Young is beautiful. (laughs) Right? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, mine's not as crystallized, but I've always loved horror. I've always been very aware of, uh, of gender. In, in films and I don't know, I guess the idea I always had growing up was like, people would ask me like, well, are you gay? And I'm like, I don't know, I've never had sex with a dude, so mm. <laughs> don't knock until you tried it, which is clearly a thing that like straight 15 year old boys would say, like there's no queerness going on there. But yeah, I started to write and think about horror specifically come the late 2010s purely because <laughs> 
in a kind of spiteful way, I was seeing a lot of takes that I did not agree with and not nearly as many as many takes I did agree with. So I went, okay, well, I guess I have to throw my hat in the ring. And now here we are. Great answers, you guys. So I think we should maybe start with like, what representation of this killer man in the dress do you find to be the kind of kickoff point for this trope? Oh, I mean, do we want to talk about fiction or reality on this one? Because they're pretty intertwined. I think it's a mix. Yeah. Yeah, they go one and the same, unfortunately. And I guess we would probably agree that Ed Gein would be a starting point. It's uh-huh. Ed Gein. Always. <laughs> it's always Ed Gein. And the thing is, Ed Gein's not the first. Like, like Ed Gein and the things that came after him is not the first example. Like, that's not even the first time, like, with Psycho, Hitchcock had previously done a like murderous man in drag movie called Murder because it was the 30s and you could have succinct one word answers like that. And people just went, well, no one's ever called a movie murdered before. So I guess he's the first. But uh, the controversy of that one was more that the character was uh, of, of mixed race. And that was the big like what mm. to do about it. But yes, it's certainly not until Ed Gein that we start to sensationalize the whole of this. And with Psycho, everyone then wanted to write the next Psycho. And really quick, just in case somehow our listeners have not yet been initiated into Ed Gein, he was a serial killer type in the, uh, was it the 50s in the Midwest? Mm-hmm. He was in Wisconsin. In Wisconsin, and he ended up using a lot of human body parts to make things around the house, housewares, and he also made basically a suit out of a woman's skin. Apologies for that. No trigger warning ahead. I'm sorry. But that's <laughs> sort of the story that the media told. And that, you know, he was trying to be his mother by making this suit of women's skin. And you can obviously see the psycho connection there. So I just wanted to give you guys that, dear listeners. Oh, yeah. And I mean, as far as like sensationalizing things are concerned, uh, a lot of the interviews that they did with Gein were led. Oh, yeah. He did not volunteer a lot of information. Several journalists decided to just sort of jump to conclusions or straight up make things up. And those have been mythologized in the, you know, half a century plus since. A lot of it is not, it's rooted in some reality, but so much of it is blown out of proportion in terms of like what we understand about Ed Gein and his crimes, Mm -hmm. which uh, at this point, like, yes, are they crimes? Sure. But as Sarah Marshall put it once, uh, they're spooky crafts. Oh my God, Sarah. (laughs) He's not really that much of a serial killer. He didn't kill that many people. He was more of a grave exhumer, a grave robber. Yes. Yeah. Gein was definitely a grave robber, and it does, in my opinion, it kind of points out the way that we love to gender activities, because suddenly he's making these spooky flesh arts and crafts, and of course, that means that everybody who talks to him is like, well, clearly you want to be a woman because women do crafting, so that must be the thing here, and it's like... Maybe you should unpack that. Why was that your assumption? Wow, I've never thought about that. If only he joined a quilting club. Oh, God. That would have been better. (laughs) And then I think the connection between the fact that one of the reporters claimed that he found Christine Jorgensen's autobiography in amongst his books as if Ed Gein had, Mm -hmm. like, a library. (laughs) And uh, Christine Jorgensen was the first American transgender woman to actually get gender affirming surgery. And she was like kind of a celebrity. And like a lot of people weren't that mad about it. Mm -hmm. But I think that was a big part of it to be like the 
this piece of proof that these journalists were crafting so that they could have a more sensational story to tell. Absolutely. And like, I'm pretty sure Ed Gein couldn't read. Right. I think that was kind of the smoking gun. But the other thing, too, to think about, like, historically, is that if he did, you know, theoretically have a copy of Christine Jorgensen's book, so did, like, most people in America at that time, because this was when gender-affirming care was seen as something, like, fascinating. This is, like, space-age technology we're dealing with here. People weren't so viscerally repulsed by this idea the way that so many people are now, it was novel and interesting. Right. So a lot of people read that book because they wanted to know, they were curious that like this was, it, it sounds terrible, but it was, it was kind of like going to the circus of, oh, look at this thing I get to see. This is exciting and fun. People didn't have quite the negative connotations they do now. Of course, like evangelicals always sure. did. That's just a given. But as a general concept, people were more fascinated by Christine Jorgensen than they were disgusted by her. So if Ed Gein had this book that doesn't necessarily say anything. It just means Ed Gein is a person in America at the time when this book is out. Right, right. Okay, so Psycho comes along. I was watching Queer for Fear, which is the Shudder docuseries that you were both in, and which is so fantastic. And somebody made this connection between Psycho, the most famous scene of, of course, the stabbing in the bathroom, and compared that to kind of the trans bathroom panic. And I found that to be really very interesting. And I was wondering if you had thought more about that just symbolism and imagery. For me, it's that the way that that kill is structured is that your imagination is doing all of the work. Mm -hmm. You don't actually see anything. You just think that you see things. And people are to this day convinced, you know, they stab Janet Lee and they do this. They don't. Like, it's all cut away. It's all implied. Mm -hmm. So your imagination is the one that's doing all of that extra energy. And that feels so similar to the trans bathroom panic, which is that people are making up situations in their heads and they're talking about, oh, it's this dangerous thing. There are going to be people that are coming into the bathroom and do X, Y, and Z thing. And there's no documented history of that happening. And even if that was the case, your issue is not with trans people. Your issue is with predatory men exactly. like that are <laughs> abusing a system. Like that is where your problem lies. Um, but even still, like, you know, it's just a made up boogeyman the same way that it is in Psycho, where, like, you don't actually see what you think you're seeing. You're just letting your imagination go into overdrive. And it's interesting the way that that parallel exists. And I think part of why that reveal is such a big deal is um, before we had, like, spoiler culture the way we do now, Alfred Hitchcock is kind of, like, one of the people at the forefront of, like, preventing spoiler culture. He bought every copy of Psycho that he could get his hands on <laughs> so that people couldn't read the book the movie was based on and learn the reveal early. Like, that was how intense he was because, you know, it's pre-internet. So what are you going to do? Buy every book in existence? <laughs> dedication. He didn't want people to know, which, you know, already when people are hearing that of like, oh, this movie's going to be so scary. It's going to have this big shocking ending. Hitchcock is buying books because he doesn't want us to know what's going to happen. You're going to go into the theater already with this preconceived notion of like what I'm about to see is the most shocking and vile and depraved thing I've ever seen in my life. So if that's what you've been built up for, and then that's what you see, either you will reject it 
but people weren't doing that yet because we hadn't gotten quite so cynical with our media. Um, or you're going to buy into it because Alfred Hitchcock is this master. Of course he knows what he's talking about. So if you've had months of lead up of believing what you're about to see is just going to blow your mind, you're going to let it blow your mind. And I know that it was not Hitchcock's intention uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but like he kind of ruined it for like a lot of people who play with any sort of gender presentation, specifically with trans women, because I know that this is part of like a drag series and drag and transness are not one in the same. It's like a square rectangle sort of situation where mm -hmm. some trans people do drag, but not all people who do drag are trans. I think we all know that, but saying that for my own sanity. Please. <laughs> but like, I know Hitchcock, that was not his intention. I highly doubt he had any idea what the ripple effect was going to be after this movie, but uh, he kind of fucked it up for a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, I guess the, the the issue that stems from Psycho as a whole and why this continues to be a thing that is prevalent up until... Oh, I don't know. Whatever that Jennifer Lawrence movie was, I think. like a House at the End of the Street. Yeah, all the way up until then, and also Insidious Chapter 2, like, you know, into, into the 2010s, this has been a thing continually, is that it's effective. Like, you can go ahead and make something scary in a movie, but it's not going to become a trend unless people continue to be scared of it and continue to buy into it. Like, were sharks scary before Jaws? Well, kind of. But you didn't have a shark genre, really, until Jaws. You didn't have this as a, a trope. It doesn't become one until it's a consistently repeated and popular pattern for that people start to recognize. And when it comes to Psycho, it's one in the same, where it's like, oh, is Norman Bates dressed as his dead mother? Sure. Is that the scary part? Or is it that there's a man so mentally unwell that he's wearing a dress and thinks he's a woman and is killing people. Which one's really the more scary part to, you know, the common American public, the, the beer-drinking, red-blooded Americans out there? And just presenting that option to them and letting them decide what's scarier, being murdered or the this sissy boy being the one that murders you and look how scary he is because he is so clearly fucked in the head. Is that scarier? That they walk among us sort of mentality that got popularized with communism, you know, yeah. the Red Scare before. It's uh, the increasing insidiousness, for lack of a better term, of who could be out there and who could be this unwell. And that sort of buys into the man in drag as like a passable woman that people fear. Yeah. The trans panic typically you will see of like, oh, well, you never know. You got you got to check for the Adam's apple. You got to look for big hands, you know, the telltale signs. So it all it's all become extremely uh, interwoven in terms of like men in drag in cinema and how that has shaped our reality for people in drag and trans people and any sort of gender variance, honestly. Absolutely. And I mean, a lot of what you're talking about, too, goes into the, the 50s, 60s psychology of gender variance, homosexuality, and the idea that it has to do with the mother. And I think that that's such a important part of all of this is like, 
is the scary part the man in a dress or is the scary part the psychology of the man in the dress and how mm-hmm. that person became so fucked up in this way? Uh, and I, I just am so glad we've sort of moved out of that obsession, uh, that very Freudian, gross-ass <laughs> point of view. Oh, these mother boys, though. Yes, these little mother boys. <laughs> More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat, gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. And now back to the show. So, okay, I we kind of know where this came from. And I think, you know, maybe Psycho would be one of the more damaging examples because it kind of kicked it off a little bit. But I do want to talk about a film that I know is very important to the three of us in recent years has been sort of named as problematic totally fair arguments there but today we are also going to give it the honor we think it deserves and that is the rocky horror picture show oh hell yeah so i would love for both of you to give me just the rundown on what it is about rocky horror that touched your life i mean it's the most important queer film ever made Full stop. Full stop. And that's probably a controversial thing for people who are just like, uh, actually, I think this French lesbian film from the 30s, uh, <laughs> that was the first to do it is more important or any other selection you can choose. Rocky Horror legitimately normalized like deviant, weird, queer behavior. It allowed you to be a weirdo and transcended from like underground cult cinema into the mainstream to the point where like they were doing Rocky Horror live on network television and people know what it is and they generally accept it and aren't afraid of it. That's a really important detail of like disarming and how it does things. Um, Rocky Horror was one of the metric tests I used when I was like kind of feeling out how someone was going to feel about me being trans before they knew. I was just like, oh my God, like one of my favorite movies, Rocky Horror, and then be like, how do you feel about this movie? (laughs) 
I don't know. I just think that it's a fascinating example of this trope, especially it's like fairly early on in it. Like we're only about, you know, a decade plus removed from Psycho by the time that Rocky Horror starts to, you know, become a theater show and eventually the film. It's a fairly controversial voice that I would love to dissect later of Richard O'Brien yeah. being a queer person, writing a queer story and dissecting this trope and doing so in a way that is just so captivating and enticing. And is it messy? Yes, but bless, give me messy queer characters. I want nothing more. It's everything at once. And it fostered a community for people to be weirdos, like under the cover of night and find their people. And that's awesome. BJ. I, oh, I, asking how I feel about Rocky <laughs> Horror is like asking me how I feel about my soul, which is like, that's too big of a question. Um, but Rocky Horror was something that I came to really early in my life. And then I started sneaking into live productions with the Shadowcast up in Milwaukee. Shout out to Sensual Daydreams. I'm obsessed with all of you. Listeners might know that that is Trixie Mattel's home Rocky Horror crew. Uh, that's where I used to go. So I would go in there and it was just, you know, the the weirdest Midwest queers you've ever seen in your life and in an area where that's not super common of having people being overtly, openly queer. Mm -hmm. There's something really powerful about that and being in that space and knowing you could be whoever you wanted and no one was going to say anything to you about it. Like you're definitely not the weirdest person there ever. That was such a formative experience for me growing up. But as far as just like the movie itself and the music, there is something that I think speaks to a part of me that even before I could really crystallize what it was and what it meant, Rocky Horror was pointing me in the right direction of like, you're not like the squares. You're not like Brad and Janet. You are one of these weirdos. And it's so cool that you are. And some people are not going to get it. And some people are going to be afraid of you for it. But if you embrace this, you are going to have like the most fun you could possibly ever have. <laughs> it was just revolutionary. And I think something that's really hard, especially now where, you know, we have people coming to Rocky Horror in an era where they do have alternate queer media. They do have quote unquote good representation. And therefore it's hard for them to understand that at a certain point, like this is kind of all we had. And that's not to say that like Rocky Horror isn't a masterpiece in its own right, because it absolutely is. But when you have sanitized, clean, safe representation, something like Rocky Horror seems so radical and so terrifying mm -hmm. of like, we don't want the public to think this is who we are. We can't have that. And they don't realize that what they're asking for is assimilation. Like they don't recognize that that's what they're doing because, you know, they're, they're young, they're coming to it at a new point. But Rocky Horror is such a distilled capsule of queer liberation, because that's what it is. It is a liberating film where nobody is the perfect person. Nobody is a perfect victim. People are messy. People make mistakes. And we should be allowed the freedom to make those mistakes or be whatever. And if we're a bad person, it's not because we're queer. It's because we're a bad person. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's a good point. Man, I came to this movie, I think I was 11 years old, and my dad showed it to me. And he was uh, you know, sneaking in in the 70s, you know, into the shadow cast plays and dressing up and, uh, 
when I saw it, it was 100% like mouth agape, like what is this? Where has this been in my life? I'm 11. Mm -hmm. I don't know what's going on, but I do know that I want my life to like move toward whatever this is. And luckily my mom was such a Rocky Horror person too. And she took me to the theater play of it, not a shadow cast, but a full theater play of it. And yeah, it was just, uh, there was something about it that really changed my life. And I don't know, I think what you brought up about it being this encapsulation of queer liberation. We talked a lot in our drag uh, episode part two about that time and about the early 70s and what was going on. And I think that this is such a, as you said, a capsule of that and of what the 70s was like. We can look back at it and see the problematic elements, you know, some of the sexual relationships, some of like the coercion and the more problematic elements there. And of course, the the hacking off of limbs by the <laughs> cross-dresser character. Of course. But I do think putting it in its context in the 70s, this is what the 70s were like. <laughs> you know, we didn't have the forethought of what the 2020s were going to be like. And so I think it deserves a lot more credit than it's getting right now. And especially because it developed this whole underground culture that allowed people to actually do drag. And it wasn't just people who had this desire to be or live as another gender or someone who wanted to be a drag queen. It was just like someone like my dad who is not any of those things. And he's just like, that sounds fun. Let's do that. And in a way that, you know, I can see why that that could be problematic or that could be damaging in some way. But to me, that was a deep normalization of something that people found so appalling and frightening. And suddenly it was just a bunch of teenagers and 20-somethings having a great time together. And I watched so much like coverage of it and how people were talking about it. I read a lot of newspaper articles about it. And Rocky Horror just was not received negatively, just kind of the way that Christine Jorgensen was surprisingly not received negatively, like the pansy craze when gay people were suddenly the biggest performers in America and they were out of the closet and then they got stuffed back in eventually. But it's like there is something about this reception that queerness can get. And I find that to be really interesting and and I think Rocky Horror is a perfect example of, I think, as you mentioned, Harmony, and something you wrote, the power of this kind of representation, because Frankenfurter was a beloved character, even though he was a villain at the same time. Oh, totally. Um, and like two things that I want to say. First of all, you all have significantly more interesting uh, introductions to Rocky Horror than me, because <laughs> I learned about it from the Drew Carey show. Nice. <laughs> Because there's absolutely a musical number where it's the gayest thing I ever saw as like a seven-year-old where they are having dueling dance numbers of the cast doing Priscilla, Queen of the Desert versus Rocky Horror Picture Show, <laughs> which is a lot for the Midwest. To be fair, though, like Mimi is kind of wearing Frankenfurter makeup 24-7. Like she just yes. exists with that makeup. She is a drag queen, yes. But she was on the Priscilla side. Oh, shocking. Drew Carey was on the Rocky Horror side. I love this. But aside from that, like, I think something that is not really considered when you think about like Rocky Horror and, you know, whether it's aged well or not, is that it's a horror movie. 
Uh, yeah. Like when I wrote about Rocky Horror Picture Show, I compared Frankenfurter to like the villain or a murderous man in drag. And some dude was like, um, I don't know if it's fair to call Frankenfurter a murderer. Like, yeah, sure. He kills someone. But like, <laughs> he's not a murderer. I'm like, that's pretty much the definition of a murderer, my guy. He murders in front of everyone. <laughs> and then makes them like tries to get them to eat them. He murders and then re-murders him and then feeds him to them. <laughs> So, like, there's that. But horror movies are not thinking about being future-proof, certainly not in the 70s, and, you know, maybe more so now, but they're not thinking about, like, oh, well, how will this be digested in 20 years? They're not thinking about the long term. They're thinking about things now, because horror movies are a response to what is going on socially. So that's why they are effective. Why, why do we talk about Psycho and not the millions of other terrible, you know, reveals that are out there of, like, the murderous man in the dress trope. Why are we talking about, like, Psycho and not Wes Craven's Deadly Blessing or something like that? Mm -hmm. It's because it's effective. It was good. And simply having that scare is not enough for it to be, like, ingrained in the pantheon. But it is so effective because people are actually scared of it at the time. It's because it is feeding into a very real fear. And... I don't know, come the 70s, things got blown open. Everyone was doing cocaine and all sorts of party drugs. Hayes Code was dead. Like, the 70s were a wild time. And I don't know, it was a a really good, optimistic time that we had for queerness prior to, you know, the AIDS epidemic. And then in the 90s, it was like, oh, we're in a positive time again. And then George Bush happened. And it was like, God damn it. So I'm glad that you brought up the Hayes Code. Yeah. I mean, it's it's only, like, kind of important. <laughs> well, because that's part of, like, this context that I think gets lost with, you know, people that are coming to Rocky Horror later in life, you know, so far removed from everything, is that the reason that, like, we have a genre called exploitation is because once the Hayes Code went away, the pendulum swung so hard in the opposite direction because we could. Film everything. <laughs> it was, like, a liberating experience of, like, oh, we can show people in the same bed together we can show queer people and they don't have to be you know moralized or like wishing that they weren't gay they can actually just be gay so people went so hard in the other direction and I think again when you've been taught to receive media or your media exposure has been stuff that just fully did not exist um, until very, very recently. It's hard to go back and see what came before. We have this discussion all the time on our podcast with like looking at teen movies that are responses to like John Hughes movies. And then you look at John Hughes movies and it's like, oh my God, all these things are like terrible and have like aged horrendously. And in a lot of ways, yeah, that's very, very true. But then you look at like a step before that and it's like these like out of control sex comedies and it's like, wait, he was really tame compared to what came before. But if you don't know these things, then he looks like the worst thing you've ever seen. And that's kind of what we get with Rocky Horror is like if you don't have a knowledge of film or like you've not seen film where like everything has to exist in metaphor, then it's a lot harder to appreciate people like going balls to the wall Absolutely. I think this has also become like a thing in terms of uh, how stuff has aged with like Richard O'Brien, where Richard O'Brien is some kind of non-gender. Richard O'Brien is, sorry, the director and writer of Rocky Horror, just in case people don't know. Correct. He just kind of goes, he's fine. Like he's used he he pronouns forever. But like as far as like gender is concerned, 
pretty much the way Richard O'Brien invented how they view gender and identify with gender is so grassroots and unscientifically founded because we just did not have a popular consensus on what like someone who was genderqueer or non-binary would have been at the time. So because of that, he uses a lot of a uh, language that seems archaic and seems like he's on the wrong side of things. So people have accused him of being a transphobe across the years. And it, I, I don't believe that. I just think he's old. <laughs> Isn't that a lot of the issues in our world is people are yeah. old? Uh-huh. <laughs> so this is not me trying to like, you know, say like, oh, you just don't get Richard O'Brien the way I do. Because obviously I, I don't know the person. Like I, we're not personal friends. But knowing the way that Richard O'Brien talks about gender variance, because Richard O'Brien is, you know, some sort of gender alien at this point, like Mm -hmm. identifies not on the binary, but like somewhere in the middle. And when asked about like trans people, he will say things like, well, trans women aren't women, they're trans women. And like, when you were a like person who is one of the very first, most prominently like non-binary gender person in existence and all of the language you have and the community you built and everything that you did did not exist with like uh, dictionary definitions, did not exist with psychological evaluation, did not exist with any any sort of like cool three minute TikTok video on here's what a demisexual means, like without any of that knowledge, you do think about it in a completely different way because he lived like literally lived outside of the margins. Like that is how mm-hmm. that is how Richard O'Brien existed. So to then have all of that kind of shaken of like, nope, the new narrative is this, Richard O'Brien's not gonna subscribe to that. And he's probably gonna be really defiant about the way that he <laughs> expresses that. Yeah. He he loves trans women. It's just yes. Richard O'Brien <laughs> thinks that we're all gender weirdos and like pretty much nobody is actually cis. Yes, that's very much kind of his approach to things. And so when people hear Richard O'Brien says trans women aren't women, they're like, oh my God, I can't believe he's a transphobe. And it's like, no, he believes that trans women are real. He believes that trans people are real. He believes cis people are not real. Um, and, <laughs> and if anything, he just believes like we just all exist. And like, it's silly to try to think that like, you know, we're we're all one and the same because none of us exist in the world as one and the same. Like, it's like such a big brained approach to gender that it sounds reductive. But when you like, again, when you have the context of who Richard O'Brien is as a person and like the way that they've experienced gender and the way they've presented gender and all of that, it makes sense. But out mm-hmm. of context, if you don't have that research, then yeah, it sounds pretty bad. <laughs> Yep. Well, the context for all of this is the most important thing. Context is king. Context is always king. But a lot of people don't unpack like what a movie means in its time and stuff like that. Like we're kind of broaching into the 80s. Do we want to just talk about Dress to Kill now, which is, you know, De Palma doing Psycho? Absolutely. Please. (laughs) So bless Brian De Palma. He just loves Hitchcock and Psycho so much that he's like, let me take a crack at it. Let me try and do a less problematic (laughs) version of Psycho. And, you know, for 1980, he did the best he could. And it just doesn't, uh, it doesn't come together in the end. Because in the in this version of Psycho, you know, with Michael Caine as our Norman Bates type character, this character is now canonically trans, including a several minute long uh, explanation of what transness is at the end of the film. Now, granted, do the main characters snicker their way through it? 
yeah, but I believe that people in 1980 absolutely would do that. So it's not, I don't love it, but I don't think that it's dishonest to how people respond to that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it is Michael Caine kind of wearing like very uh, sexy women's clothing as as he's having a, a split personality named Bobby. And it gets into this perverse nature, uh, this almost giallo nature of sexiness, but it kind of wraps around as a comedy because it's like, well, come on, it's Michael Caine and he's wearing like fishnets. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that also is not to bring it back to Rocky Horror, but it did make me think when you said that about how Frankenfurter was so fucking hot that yes. everybody, I mean, I think it's like a universal attraction. And it, it was this universal attraction to someone like Tim Curry, who we wouldn't say is necessarily traditionally attractive, but. Oh, he's so hot. There's perhaps no like hotter person than Dr. Frankenfurter in that movie. The fact that that didn't cause some kind of moral panic says a lot about the 1970s and uh, <laughs> that people were like, yeah, you know, they probably weren't like, that's a sexy guy in a dress, but people were feeling it and they weren't uh, acting aggressive about it. They were just kind of like, okay, I guess this is how I feel. Don't mind me. I'm just casually texting Chelsea pictures that I have saved on my phone of how hot <laughs> Tim Curry is. Yeah. Hottest, <laughs> hottest, hottest. Uh, but please continue. I just had to. It, it deserved a mention. Of course. Yes. It was very important. And I don't know. It. De Palma's doing his best, but like this is obviously now getting into like the Venn diagram of drag and trans where it's mm -hmm. like, yeah, there is some overlap with these. But the issue that you then run into, and we'll see this solidified significantly more as the 80s go on in particular, and people become scared of queer people again, is that there's a subconscious mindset that comes with this where even if you canonize this character of Bobby as a trans woman who's having like a mental breakdown because they can't understand that like they're a lesbian trans woman and they hate women who are prettier than them, but they're also attracted to them. So when they get boners, that's when the murderous drag trans side comes out. Oh. Uh, it's, a, it's a big messy gender cocktail. <laughs> and also this movie has a really underrated final girl, which I love. But the American viewer, even if you tell them this is a trans character, they're going to go, no, that's Michael Caine. And right. it still is an act. And that ties strongly into this being like a, a movie about female impersonation because it is the you know nonfiction world. We recognize that this is a man in drag. This is Michael Caine in a wig. And what that says about how we view men who do this is more damning than the actual film itself, because it's like when you're watching Jurassic Park versus Jurassic World, Jurassic Park has like puppets and robots and CG and all these elements to trick your brain and thinking like those dinosaurs are fucking real. And you can recognize that like that is a real thing that you could reach out and touch versus no matter how good CG gets, you can look at the dinosaurs in Jurassic World and go, that's CG. Mm. I cannot touch that. And your brain knows the difference. That's a great analogy. Definitely. Yeah. And I don't want like I don't want to get into this the whole thing of like the transvestigators, which I'm really mad at how fucking good of a term that is, goddammit. Yeah. It's really funny. Damn. <laughs> God, it's so fucking funny. But I don't want to get into the thing of like, we always know. But there is something about your brain that recognizes a male actor playing a female role in nearly all cases. And then your brain just kind of gets into this weird cartwheel of, you know, what 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 you don't see, like in psycho. 
you know, what it doesn't tell you, what you're connecting dots in your own imagination to. So you talking about that makes me want to reference a point in the documentary Disclosure, which is on Netflix. Um, It is produced by Laverne Cox. It is all about the way that trans characters and cross-dressing and drag have been presented in film. And they make that point very distinct that when you have actors like Michael Caine, like Jared Leto, you know, any of these characters playing or, you know, your your one-sided feud with Eddie Redmayne Harmony. God, my enemy. When you have these cis male actors playing trans characters or drag characters because we have such an association with them as cis men we know that it's a costume we know that it's performance versus when you have somebody like Laverne Cox like Trace Lissette you know like Jamie Clayton who when the cameras aren't rolling are still women your brain realizes them as women, which is why when Jamie Clayton is Pinhead in Hellraiser, the new one, we know Pinhead's a woman. Like Mm -hmm. our brain knows Mm -hmm. that Pinhead is a woman, even though she's covered in costume prosthetics and has pins coming out of her head. We know that. Even if Cenobites don't believe in gender. (laughs) Yes, even though Cenobites are all genderless demon monsters. Exactly. But we know these things. And so that's what it gets really frustrating with something like Dress to Kill, because full disclosure, Brian De Palma is my second favorite director. John Waters is my first. And Dress to Kill was always the movie that I felt some kind of way about because I'm like, I, I see what you're doing here. De Palma loves Hitchcock, clearly wants to pay homage to Psycho in whatever updated way he feels fit. But it's still very clunky. It's still very problematic. And it wasn't until Harmony was like, OK, but look at timeline wise. If Bobby, so Michael Caine's character, if Bobby is a trans woman, she would have been a trans woman who was born and raised in the 30s. She'd be a trans woman where people who were trans, they would not allow you to pursue any sort of gender affirming surgery if you were gay. Because if somebody who was assigned male at birth was attracted to women, clearly they'd be like, oh, well, you're not you're not a woman. Like, you're clearly a man because you still have attraction mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. women. So, like, that would be a total mindfuck for her because even today, like, people still don't fully understand, like, that trans people can be trans and queer at the same time. Oh, I... I worked in AIDS prevention and I had a an old gay man who was my boss make fun of me going, <laughs> you're trans and you're attracted to women. What's the point? Oh, God. That was like 10 years ago. Like, ugh, it's so mortifying. <laughs> but it's like when you have that context and it's like, oh, wait, this makes so much more sense. I completely understand this backstory motivation behind Dress to Kill. But at the end of the day, it's still Michael Caine in a bad wig. And like, mm-hmm. that's how people view that character. I mean, and we even get that moving further down the line, even with something like Cherry Falls, a movie that is so bananas ridiculous <laughs> yeah. that by the end of it, when you get the big reveal, it's like, oh, it's Jay Moore in a wig. Okay. <laughs> Got it. That's true trans representation. You always start with a bad wig. <laughs> and so to go back in time just a little bit, you mentioned John Waters, and I think that's not a director we should skip over, especially (sighs) considering Divine. So I'm interested in what you both think about the effect of John Waters' films on this consciousness. I mean, the man does no wrong. (laughs) We're all drifting through life trying to figure out how to do things, and John Waters had had it figured out since the 60s. Already did it. Waters did it. More after this. And now, back to the show. 
Well, because the thing that John Waters does so well that so many people like still today struggle to figure out how to do is Divine canonically always played women. Like unless Divine was out of drag and it was Glenn Milstead, the characters were women. Don Davenport is a woman. Bunny is a woman. Like these are the characters that she plays because that's how John Waters wants the audience to view the character. Mm -hmm. And like, yes, we do know that Divine is a drag persona and a drag character. But when you're watching the movie is like, that is Edna Turnblad. Like mm -hmm. that is who she is. And that is so powerful. And John Waters also had trans actresses in his movies playing trans women or playing cis women that, you know, sometimes they would flash what they got under their skirts and you just deal with it. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's something that, like, I don't understand how we haven't figured out, like, you can just do that. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, <laughs> pretty easy to just let that happen. But John Waters, like his approach to gender was so matter of fact, like there wasn't any sort of like, we have to explain why divine looks the way she does. And this is why she is presented in this manner. It was like, no, I cast divine in this role because she's amazing. Deal with it. And it's like, it's that easy. It's that fucking easy. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> and also, to some extent, um, I mean, it's related, but not really. This is what, like, I am a big proponent of, like, not understanding why there is not more solidarity with trans people or with people of gender variances. Like, I'm cis that's how I'll describe it, cis-ish, um, mostly cis. I navigate the world as a cis woman, but I navigate the world as a fat cis woman. And I have infinitely more in common with trans women of any size because my body's legislated the same. People are either mm. fetishizing it or repulsed by it. People think that there's some sort of like moral problem with the way that my body exists. People are terrified of becoming me. Like there is just way more uh, solidarity and crossover between like <laughs> cis fat people and trans people. So because of that, John Waters like hits a perfect intersection for me because John Waters also presented like fat women and fat people in general as regular people. Like they weren't like Edith Massey is not the fat character. She just is the character. She's just playing the role. So when you have somebody like Edith Massey on screen with Divine and they're both just playing regular degular people and not necessarily these like, like, of course, it's everything's heightened. It's John fucking Waters. But like, you know, we, I just watched Polyester um, with Smell-O-Vision, of course, <laughs> at the theater. And Divine is a housewife and Edith Massey is like a former maid who is now like a rich socialite but they're just hanging out in her kitchen and going to the mall together. Like that is just their life. And it's two people that exist on the fringes of society otherwise. And John Waters is like, no, like <laughs> we're not going to do that. Yes, there's subversion here because the world doesn't see them as regular degular people. And that's where kind of the fun juxtaposition happens. But he wasn't afraid to let the biggest weirdos you've ever seen in your life play the most normal people that you would have ever, like you read like a character description, all of them are just normal ass people. Oh, it's so brilliant. <laughs> he's a genius, like he's such a genius. And every once in a while, along with Rocky Horror, like I'm not generalizing all Zoomers, but like a very specific vocal subset of Zoomers will be like, um, did you know that in Pink Flamingo, they fucking kill a chicken? It canceled John Waters. And everyone's like, um, 
Please, no. <laughs> Shut up. Context, people. Context. There's a lot of, there's a lot of context missing here and drugs. He also has a butthole sing in that movie. So, like, I'd say the scale's even. <laughs> right. Okay. I think it's time to move on to another very important film, Silence of the Lambs. Uh, Harmony's favorite. Yes. Big... Uh, Big stuff here. <laughs> Take it away, Harmony. <laughs> God damn this movie. Oh, God. So so here's, here's the difference. Silence of the Lambs versus a lot of other things is this is a movie where, um, and I've written extensively about how regrettably James Gum is, is trans and I'm not happy about it. But what this movie does so well is, one, it's a very effective made movie. Um, it's a... Movie that is total schlock, but is judged up so well that it looks like a high-class thriller, and it's not, <laughs> because Jonathan Demme just made a really well-crafted film. But the frustration that I have with this movie is that the average viewer feels smarter because they're listening to Hannibal Lecter, a man who is equally as insane, but is eloquent about it in terms of his dissection of gender. And because... Buffalo Bill, as we know, is living in squalor in a dilapidated house and throwing fat girls in bottoms of wells. That clearly means that he is lower on the social totem pole of like queer monstrousness. And that means that that is the proper villain of the movie, even though the clearly big bad is Hannibal Lecter. But because Lecter has science, he has knowledge that is actually not very correct because he doesn't understand when John Hopkins actually stopped their gender affirming care. And you can read more about that in my <laughs> article for the AV Club. People feel like they understand things. Like this is their excursion into schlock trash, and it's the one that they know of the 90s. And unlike Soap Dish or Ace Ventura or, you know, the, the, the crying game, where this movie capitalizes on America's sensations is it's not, you're not repulsed per se. You're not laughing at the man in drag, the man who wants to be in drag, the man who wants to be a woman. You're afraid. And it's so much more malicious and insidious than other examples that you were getting in the mainstream at the time. Like Silence of the Lambs was one of the highest grossing films of the year. It was nominated for so many Academy Awards. It, it won, won so many. It won all all of them. <laughs> I mean, it was Best Picture. Yes. It's in the Library of Congress. It's cemented in cultural status as like an important film, which further solidifies people going like, okay, but silence is onto something. Hmm. Like you were reinforcing the problems with this movie. And like we had a show, we had the Clarice show and it sort of tried to fix things, but you can't. It's baked into the DNA of this like bloated corpse that you decided to <laughs> dig up because we needed to bolster Clarice Starling. But like that with that comes the stink of Buffalo Bill. So it's just awful. And even in the movie, we have Clarice do her little moment where she's like, well, most killers are not transgender, you know, and it, to that little like caveat to, to dismiss the, the problems. Most trans women are very passive. <laughs> what was it? Most transsexuals are really passive. And Billy's not a transsexual. He only thinks he is. OK, shut the fuck up, both of you. None of you yeah. are trained in this in any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> like not to be a stickler, but obviously because of Jodie Foster being Jodie Foster, Clarice is coded yeah. as a lesbian and Hannibal Lecter is clearly coded as a fruity little yeah. man and we know that 
this just feels like other members of the queer community just punching down at trans people if, if you really want to unpack it. But it's also doing that via the lens of straight filmmakers, because like Jonathan Demme, to the death, never understood what he did with this movie. He's like, oh, I, re- I regret that I didn't do a better job of pointing out that Buffalo Bill isn't gay. I, I wasn't clear enough with like his former partner. And it's like, you don't understand that you made perhaps the most damning piece of anti-trans film that will ever be made. And you just never got it. Uh, yeah. Which is such a shame. It, it is a shame. And of course, like court of public opinion, whether you decide to think that Buffalo Bill is a trans woman or not, court of public opinion doesn't matter. The, the trans panic is there. The fear of the murderous man in the dress is there. Like, it's all become, at this point, it is just, you know, uh, propaganda fear soup, you know? Yeah. And something that's also really important to point out, because, you know, we're in the 90s now, is that cross-dressing, like, this is not like a new thing in cinema. You know, we have kind of the origins all the way back when you look at something like Some Like It Hot, which did help kill the Hays Code, but that's a comedy. Mm -hmm. Once we get into the 90s and especially into the 2000s, the way that we're going to start most commonly seeing cross-dressing and, you know, these sort of drag characters in comedy is going to be a way for... (laughs) They talk about this in Disclosure much better than I'm going to because I am a white person, but black comedians get put in drag and it's a way to disarm them and make them seem less dangerous, make them seem less aggressive because now Eddie Murphy's in a dress or now the Wayans brothers are in a dress and now we as American culture don't have to be afraid of them and we can find them hilarious, whereas the opposite happens for white people where it's like, how do we ensure that people are so terrified of this white male character, even though, statistically speaking, we should be more afraid of white men than anyone else, let's put them in a dress because mm-hmm. now now they're deviant mm-hmm. and now they're mm-hmm. scary. L- look how unwell this character clearly is that, you know, he, in big quotes, wants to wear a dress. He wants to change his gender. Oh my God, what a fucking psychopath. And I mean, they actually called people who had gender variants or different sexualities in the 30s and 40s sexual psychopaths. So I think that that's a pretty mm-hmm. interesting uh, little tag there. I was like, and because I'm not trying to like put you on blast here or anything, Harmony, but when you transitioned, you was still in the DSM-5, wasn't it? Yep. Wow. It was still considered a mental condition when you transitioned? Uh, yeah, I've, I've been, I've been, you know, just kicking it out on these streets <laughs> for so long that it was still a mental disorder. And people actually used it to gain the system because then therapists and healthcare providers could go ahead and be like, well, it's a, if it's a condition, we have have to treat it versus like, you know, the head of John Hopkins medical ward thinking that we were facilitating in the aiding of mental illness by shutting down the gender affirming wing of that hospital, which, you know, Hannibal Lecter should know about, but doesn't. He selectively chooses to leave that out, the writer and the directors and everyone else. But like, oh, God, this fucking movie. Uh, Yeah, no, it was it was a different time. And the way, too, when we think about Silence of the Lambs, like the longevity of it, because some people will be like, well, you know, it's it's more of a joke now. You know, Chris Griffin and Family Guy does the talk like it's not, you know, everybody knows it's meant to be a joke or like, you know, nobody takes it seriously and then forgets the fact that during, you know, kind of the boom of bathroom bills in the, uh, the late 2010s, people in like South Carolina were going on Fox News and calling these bathroom bills Buffalo Bills. Like, oh, no, I never mm-hmm. heard that. It's awful. 
awful. Like they were granted it's like isolated, like annoying pundits, but like it's still happening. Like the same kind of weirdos that go on Tucker Carlson and are being like, I smoked crack and fucked Barack Obama. Like those weirdos. Those weirdos are the types of people that are like these bills, like they're Buffalo bills. That's because in their mind, that's what they're afraid of in these Mm -hmm. bathrooms. They're not afraid of somebody like Harmony. They're afraid of Jame Gum. They're afraid of Norman Bates. Like they're afraid of these characters because I think the last uh, time Human Rights Campaign did a poll, it was something like 80% of Americans don't actually know a trans person. So they're gaining all their information from the news and from media, which Mm -hmm. is also why we're having so many of these like old ass celebrities getting caught up in weird propaganda rhetoric because if they're not having direct conversations with people and because when you're that rich you don't talk to anyone else that isn't also a very rich person and there are not a lot of rich trans people in this world then you don't understand that it's all bullshit like you don't get it because you don't have that human connection i mean Mm -hmm. (laughs) silent of the lambs proves it the reason that she says Catherine so many times trying to appease jame gum is because she's trying to humanize like human connection is so powerful but when that doesn't happen because people either don't have community that they can count on then they're remembering things like buffalo bill and like that is becoming the pervasive narrative in their mind like i love horror it is my favorite genre of film because it is so deep and it is so rich and there are so many different ways to explore anxieties and explore fears and also have fun like i love it But also, we cannot deny the fact that horror movies have been directly responsible for a lot of the transphobia and anti-drag sentiment that we have in this country, because if they don't know anything, they're basing it off of these horror movies, which unfortunately horror as a genre has had like more trans representation and more like drag representation Mm. than most other film genres. If it's not comedy, it's horror. Mm Mm-hmm. And like, I, I think that we are, it's safe to say that all of us in this room and I think safe to say a sizable portion of the people listen to this, this is all stuff that they kind of know, like it seems fair, but for, you know, like some dude that I grew up next to in middle of rural Ohio, like, yeah, you learn about Buffalo Bill and then that is the fact and facts don't change. Mm. So, you know, a sizable portion of this country learns a thing and then does not follow through on the thing because, oh, well, I learned it and it was factual then as I understood it. So that's it. And it's all of these like cranky old people who have no exposure to anything and they don't understand the difference between a drag queen or a trans woman even. They don't even know what a trans man is. Never mind this like third thing or these infinite other things like, oh God, like they have no semblance of any of that. Like it's, People who were fed some information and then regurgitating that information, not realizing that they don't have all the facts and things have changed. Yes, absolutely. So another movie that you've both written about extensively uh, is Sleepaway Camp. So could you talk a little bit about why you think Sleepaway Camp is worthy of the amount of work that you've put into understanding it and and also give our listeners who might not know Sleepaway Camp just a little bit of context about what the movie's about? 
So Sleepaway Camp is a slasher movie that came out in the early 80s when there was a wave of slasher movies in the wake of the success of Halloween and Friday the 13th. There were so many slasher movies that came out during this time period that it's kind of impossible to keep track of. But Sleepaway Camp became very well known for two reasons. One, the cast is extremely young. This is not a slasher movie that is dealing with adults playing teenagers. This is a slasher movie where teenagers are playing teenagers and speak appropriately like teenagers. There has been no greater insult in a slasher film than eat shit and die, Ricky. Eat shit and live, Bill. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Just incredible. But the reason that this movie has remained so infamous and at this point iconic is because it is a slasher that has a reveal that not only is the killer a woman, which is so funny that people act as if like this was this big revolutionary thing, despite the fact that the original Friday the 13th is also a woman because it's Mrs. Voorhees, but that's neither here nor there. We forget. (laughs) It was also not the first slasher film to have the reveal of, oh my God, it was a girl. Like that happens all the time. Um, There's like dozens of films that had come out at that point. But where it's different is that it is also revealed that slasher Angela Baker is not a cis woman, that Angela is actually Peter, her brother, who has been groomed to live and present as Angela, her dead sister, which in my opinion, that is way more fucked up than like, just like, (laughs) it's not just garden variety child abuse with like gender fuckery. It's also that you're going to cosplay as your dead sibling. Like that's way worse. Stark. It's really dark. And because of that ending, this movie has sort of skyrocketed in its notoriety. And what's fascinating is that when you look at it from the lens of like the 80s, critics at the time were very much like, okay, sure, but more so this just feels like a cheap Friday the 13th ripoff and it's really schlocky and really inappropriate uh, because a lot of the cruelty in this movie is like based in real life, like rooted in real life cruelty. Uh, Like the first person who dies in this outside of our like cold open where, you know, Angela's brother dies or Peter's sister dies, I should say. Um, The first person who is like the slasher victim is definitely a pedophile working at this camp. So it's like really harrowing stuff. Um, But because of this ending, this movie has transcended and you can kind of look at the way the public at large feels about certain trans issues and how trans community has been built and queer community has been built through the internet and what have you, that has been sort of reflective of the way people view this movie. It went from being not really anything to, oh my God, this is such an important piece of queer media to, oh my God, this is trash to, oh my God, this is really important and now has to represent everything. And I think Harmony can speak more to that. And now we're kind of in this weird place where it's kind of a battle of like some people are super into sleepaway camp and what it has to say about gender. And some people are like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Don't ever talk about sleepaway camp in my presence. Like it has become such a polarizing film. I mean, I guess what's worth noting is that if for anyone who has never seen this movie, there's no resolution. <laughs> no. Literally, there's the gender reveal of uh, what is a, a drunk college kid wearing the snarling mask of uh, 14-year-old Felissa Rose. Of, of Angela Baker. And um, he's standing out there just dick out. And then the movie just kind of freeze frames and it ends. Yep. So 
Th- th- that's something that's worth noting for anyone who's never seen this movie. But like I was saying earlier with like your brain knows the difference. Like this isn't a cross-dressing killer, like in terms of casting. You know, this is an actual cis woman playing, you know, a- an ambiguous gender monster thing where we're now like three layers deep in terms of like it's someone impersonating someone else who's actually someone else it's robert jenny jr impersonating a dude who's playing another dude but with less blackface that helps (laughs) it helps so much thank god for that always good god bless but the reputation of this movie has unfortunately gotten extremely complicated because there's a finite number of trans films there's a finite number of positive trans films in horror that you can actually put a spin on it because as BJ has said, it's not a genre that's kind to gender variants. Queer people, trans people, honestly people of color, like horror has a unique reputation the older back it gets in terms of how it handles any kind of marginalized person. But because of that, Sleepaway Camp has to encapsulate all forms of queerness where it's people come up with theories of like, well, actually, I think Angela is uh, a trans mask story because it's a boy trying violently to get out of a female body and female presentation. I think that Sleepaway Camp is about monstrous lesbianism because of the way that Angela kills Judy by sticking a curling iron inside of her and then smothering her because the smothering would have been enough, but it had to get psychosexual. I think Mm -hmm. that this movie is actually a really interesting look at gay men because they're all wearing jean shorts and crop tops and that was just the look of the 80s it's actually not that gay when you look at it in that context there's just a million fan theories that this movie has to encapsulate and it's kind of unfair to then expect everything out of this one schlocky film where the writer literally said i'm here's a cool ending that i think will be fun let's write the movie in reverse Like, there was enough forethought put into it that it's not like an out-of-nowhere reveal, like Friday the 13th Part 5 or something like that. It's actually a fairly well-constructed slasher films in terms of leading to its reveal, but it wasn't meant to be that deep. And it's very burdenous for a schlocky film like this to have so much expectations dumped on its frail 13-year-old girl shoulders. (laughs) I think that also speaks to horror in general as a medium and and the ways that for being so schlocky and for being so campy and, and all the things that horror is, it also is this thing that we project so much onto. And I think it is unique in that way where maybe a lot of its meaninglessness in just making horror we can find more meaning from projecting onto it what we think, feel, are. And I think that's like a very cool part of horror, but it also opens up a lot of debate that can get a little toxic here and there. And something that I find very fascinating about Sleepaway Camp as sort of this this trans narrative is that unfair expectation that's put on it is also something that a lot of trans people have to deal with because most people don't actually know a trans person. So it's, obviously this is not a one-to-one comparison by any stretch of the imagination. But I think about a figure like Dylan Mulvaney, who is like an incredibly visible, incredibly well-known trans person. And now it seems as if like the entire world 
weight of, you know, trans progress and trans community mm. and trans whatever has been unfairly put on Dylan's shoulders. And she has to be representative of the community at any time. She is not allowed to be messy. She's not allowed to make mistakes because if she does, that reflects bad on the trans community because for so many people, that is their only access point. And then the same thing happens with sleepaway camp where so many people don't understand that there is a large swath of trans stories in horror, but this is kind of like the one where it's not like at, like it's obviously problematic. There's a lot of problematic things in here, but there are so many reads that exist that do make it seem like there's something empowering here. So because this now has to be representative of everything, it also has this unfair pressure on it. And then to double that, you then have Felissa Rose, um, who is a horror icon and who is in so many horror movies, who is now asked constantly at conventions, by fans, in documentaries, what have you, how she feels about being this character and what it, how does she feel about queerness and transness and all of these things. You're asking somebody who played a role when they were 14 years old, like a 14 year old person or like an adult cis woman who played a trans character when she was 14 should not suddenly become the arbiter of like transness and horror. That's such an unfair burden to put on somebody. And it's wild like how those things in this movie that for all intents and purposes, purposes should have just been yet another forgotten slasher film from the 80s like a number of them that exist this way but it, that's not how it happened and now everybody involved with this film has the same unfair burden put upon them as actual trans people just trying to exist well said as always I want to thank you both so much for coming on and talking about this topic that I think all three of us have spent a lot of time thinking about <laughs> and I think is really valuable, especially right now. And um, make sure, everybody, that you listen to This Ends at Prom. Very different movies, but pretty similar conversations, I would say. Always happy to have both of you on. You're so brilliant. And uh, thank you for talking to me about horror, my most favorite thing. Thank you. Thank you for having us. This was American Hysteria. Make sure you check out This Ends at Prom wherever you get your podcasts and pre-order BJ and Harmony's book Sleepaway Camp at diediebooks.com. You can find links to both in our show notes. If you'd like to support our show, you can now subscribe on Apple Podcasts and get ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. All you have to do is hit subscribe on your Apple app. You can also find the same benefits at patreon.com slash American Hysteria. This includes access to our other podcast, Hysteria Home Companion, a talk show that producer Miranda and I make all about the different stories that were cut from the episodes. And we'll also give you a behind the scenes look as well. So subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or at patreon.com slash American Hysteria. We're also taking submissions for our Urban Legends Hotline, where you can leave us a voicemail about the urban legends that you heard growing up. And we might just do a deep dive into your tale if it sparks enough joy within us. Our first two episodes of the Urban Legends Hotline are up now on our main feed. Check them out and then head to AmericanHysteria.com and leave us your own story. You might hear your voice on the podcast and you might find out way more than you ever wanted to. 
This episode has sound design by Clear Como Studios, was produced and edited by Miranda Zickler, and I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Thanks, as always, for listening, and I hope you have a great week.